Well, you might remember back to uh, before the last civic election, if you were voting in Vancouver, you might recall then-candidate Kennedy Stewart saying that if elected, he would bring in new rules. And the goal of those rules uh, to stop elected officials and senior staff members from uh, going forward on City of Vancouver contracts or from lobbying for a one-year period after leaving their positions. Uh, Probably not the sexiest of campaign promises, but it was a promise that was put forward. And that has led to Mike Klassen, who is a columnist with the Vancouver Courier, uh, to write about a series of meetings that seem to fly in the face of that promise. And Mike Klassen joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Mike, thanks for being here. Uh, good morning, Jill. Uh, uh, just, to, just to be clear, it was um, uh, my colleague at the, uh, the Courier, Mike Howell, who actually did the reporting on it. Um, but uh, I'm here to uh, sort of give my take on what uh, what we've seen. Okay, great. Sorry, that was my mistake, and I see it right in front of me. It was Mike Howell. <laughs> Apologies to the other Mike on that. Uh, no wh- what is your take on this, though? Because Mike Howell has written uh, at length about uh, the fact that there are all these meetings, and the meetings are posted. It's not like they're they're secret, but they are meetings that seem to contradict what was the prom the promise that was made. Well, exactly. And uh, it is uh, great that we're actually writing and talking about this because we're at a time right now where I think uh, the public are feeling a little bit jaded uh, when it comes to uh, the the close relationships that have been seen at City Hall. I mean, Vision Vancouver were accused, rightly or wrongly, of, of having very close relationships with the development community. And that just created a, a, a kind of a cynicism and, a, and a, a grumpiness, I felt, from the voting public that uh, ended up sort of seeing uh, uh, Vision Vancouver turfed out. I mean, they were virtually wiped out in the last election. Um, with uh, the Kennedy Stewart promise, I mean, the the fact that Raymond Louis has been become a bit of a fixture around um, uh, the mayor's office was uh, not a surprise to anybody who's been watching uh, what's been going on at City Hall. Uh, but as his calendar clearly shows, the, he's been in a lot of meetings. Um, uh, I think, uh, to be fair to the mayor, I think he possibly was sort of caught a little off guard by um, uh, Mike Howell's questions because um, his answers weren't exactly the kind of answers you would expect uh, from uh, an experienced politician like Kennedy Stewart, who was a member of Parliament for many years. And how so? Well, uh, he was, uh, he in a way, he kind of played dumb as to what the relationship between um, Raymond Louis, the former city councillor, and the and the developers uh, in question that were coming in, the the people he was um, uh, coming in and quote unquote advocating for um, are people that are well known uh, as being very close in uh, many several projects involving Vision Vancouver uh, during their reign, uh, West Bank um, and the Wall uh, family of developers and concert properties in particular. And um, and again, these are all, um, you know, important Vancouver companies. Uh, they should have a relationship with the city. Uh, they clearly they're um, involved in many very well-known projects. And uh, West Bank, for example, is is finishing up the uh, uh, Vancouver House building, which is at the north end of the Granville Bridge, the one that's kind of twists around. Uh, is, uh, and so those kinds of things are important for the city, but whether you should be having politicians having one-on-one meetings with these developers uh, really does open a bit of a Pandora's box. And, 
And to be honest, uh, uh, the mayor himself has brought, broken his own promise. And he was the one who came up with this idea of not having a meeting with former you know, elected officials within a year after leaving office. And, so, and what's the status of that rule then? Uh, there was a, uh, a vote to sort of send it back to staff um, back in December. And so I guess the, the actual legislation, I think the, 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 the actual um, proposed um, uh, bylaws that, um, um, that Kennedy Stewart put forward were pretty comprehensive. In fact, I thought some of the uh, kind of went over the line, like, for example, um, uh, seeing some of the sort of records of your, of your spouse, for example, um, you know, being in public life, I think for, for some people can be, um, uh, difficult. And, and if you feel like you're putting an additional stress on family members, uh, it makes it even harder sometimes to get good people. That said, you obviously don't want to be having, um, two people sort of, uh, who have a close relationship at home. Uh, that are are uh, creating some problems for the person who's making important decisions on behalf of the city. So Raymond Louis, as people will likely uh, remember, uh, served 16 years on council, uh, most recently uh, for Vision Vancouver. Uh, in Mike Howell's piece, uh, he writes that when he put that question or put questioned the number of meetings uh, that Raymond Louis had had with uh, Kennedy Stewart and with uh, developers, as you mentioned, also in, in some of them, uh, the answer that he got from Kennedy Stewart was that I never really knew any of these developers before the election, he said, but yet I'm in a situation where our housing crisis, the key issue in the city, depends on them changing their behavior. So in some yeah. ways, Raymond's been useful in terms of introductions that way. Uh, so what is Raymond Louis's role? Um, well, there's two parts to the question there. I mean, first of all, the comment that um, it, it, the mayor made it sound like it was a counseling session for, for, for folks who have been building very big buildings and a lot of housing for the last um, few decades in our city. So I, I have a hard time sort of imagining that's exactly how things played out. Uh, typically, when you have a, uh, somebody come in who is a, a kind of a relationship builder, a, a lobbyist, um, and that's what Raymond was doing. He was he was in there making introductions, probably um, explaining, uh, probably giving some context to uh, the work that these um, companies have been doing. And um, uh, you know, it sh- again, it shouldn't be any a huge surprise that Kennedy Stewart and Raymond Louis have um, a, a close relationships. They both have very deep ties to the the NDP. Um, and so they've just been probably known each other through uh, uh, se- several circles um, beforehand. And, and uh, probably the, um, the developers themselves wanted to get off on a good foot. And having somebody there that was familiar to them both probably helped them a lot. Because again, the issue isn't so much. I mean, we would expect, wouldn't we, that a mayor would meet with developers and developers would definitely want the ear of the mayor. Uh, so is it is it because he made a big deal about the rules for people who had been on city council or with the city uh, taking that year, almost that year cooling off or that year breathing period? And clearly that's not happening. I would sort of, I would say, yes, there is the whole contradiction um, issue that, that, you know, some some might sort of call it a little hypocritical that you uh, out there very boldly made these promises on the campaign trail uh, just a few months ago and you're already um, going against that that promise. 
Um, but there's also the larger question of whether um, uh, mayor, council really should be doing that kind of uh, heavy kind of one-on-one private meetings with people with fantastically large uh, financial interests in the city. You remember, at the end of the day, it's the city staff that make a lot of the uh, important decisions about um, the approval of, of uh, rezonings that can uh, make buildings taller and what have you. Um, it's not in, in it's it's important that um, that uh, mayor and council are there to try and um, review the information that that staff have given them. So um, if you can meet with um, people who have such a long track record of building big buildings in the city, um, where does it end? How many small you know developers and building operators and property owners do you meet one on one? Uh, to hear their case, uh, to me, it's a it's a bit of a, a really a bit of a slippery slope, and and probably we should be, um, you know, now that uh, we have these uh, you know calendars going to be shown for mayor and council, we should be taking a closer look at that. And I think that transparency is the only way that we can regain the public trust on this. Uh, which I would imagine a lot of people are, are at least pleased with that part. In that he's the first mayor, isn't he, uh, to actually make his calendar public to put it out there so that people it's not like you have to file a freedom of information request you can go and see exactly who he's meeting with um i i have to check on that but i I think gregor robertson um started getting in the habit of releasing his calendar it took a few months i think it's the it's that uh the kennedy stewart's doing it I think at the end of every month now, so you're able to see a bit more information. But transparency in Vancouver City Hall have not been necessarily uh, uh, two things that you would you would equate each other with, and it's something that can only get better if uh, if uh, council decides that that's what they want. Um, and um, and it's important, I think, that you know, for example, on uh, election finance, Kennedy Stewart again made a big. Um, uh, point of trying to be seen as independent, but uh, as his calendar shows, he was meeting with the head of the Vancouver District Labor Council, who paid for a significant por- portion of the campaign materials that promoted him, and he only won by I think just under a thousand votes the the mayor's job. So uh, he has a lot to thank the Vancouver District Labor Council for their uh, for their their financing and their also their uh, uh, human resource resources on the campaign trail. And not to be overly cynical, but it also, the transparency ends at the end of the workday, doesn't it? These are the meetings that are taking place at City Hall. It doesn't count, uh, say, drinks here or a dinner here or a meeting at home. I mean, there is opportunity there that the public wouldn't know about. Well, again, we're, we're electing, uh, you know, people from the city and not they're not necessarily monks, right? They do have relationships with people and we can't we can't deny them those relationships but you're right uh there there i guess there just has to be uh an openness and a transparency uh that uh that the public can have some trust because you're right people you know if they sort of see two people talking to each other you know on a patio uh, at a restaurant someplace it um, you know people it will certainly get noticed and uh, and so i think that we probably just need to have systems in place to make sure that the public can feel more trust about these uh, kinds of discussions going on. All right, we will uh, leave it there. Mike Klassen, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. 
my pleasure, Jill. Have a great day. We are joined now by Kyla Lee, who is a lawyer with Acumen Law in Vancouver. Kyla, thank you so much for being back on the program. Thank you for having me. I uh, wanted to touch on, on one story first. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, this case uh, that a lot of people were commenting on it uh, and after a picture of an RCMP officer uh, talking to somebody who was uh, driving, who was actually in a McDonald's drive through uh, Just before we get to that, though, I wanted to ask you, because I saw that you tweeted about this absolutely horrifying case in Burnaby as well of the toddler that was left in the car, uh, because a lot of people are questioning if this is a criminal case. Is this something that can be prosecuted? Well, it's always very difficult to prosecute cases like that, because unless they can prove that it was an intentional act with, you know, designed to to kill the child, what the prosecution has to consider is whether this was criminal negligence. And to get to that level, the prosecution has to have some evidence to show that there was reckless disregard for the life of the child. And the vast majority of these these tragic cases of, of kids that pass away in hot cars are cases where something happened that morning that put the parent out of their ordinary routine and they just forgot. It was just a simple human error that doesn't rise to a criminal level of negligence. And I think you make the point that a lot of people would agree with when you commented on this on Twitter, saying that the consequences that this parent, this family has to deal with is far greater than anything that they would be dealing with legal wise. Oh, absolutely. And at the end of the day, anytime the Crown is determining whether or not to approve charge and pursue a prosecution, they have to consider whether it would be in the public interest, whether it serves the goals of our criminal justice system. And, you know, parents don't need to be deterred from killing their children. That's not something that happens ordinarily in our society. Um, and, and any parent knows that if they lost their child that way, they would live with the grief and the guilt of that for the rest of their lives. So there's nothing that's really served other than retribution um, for an unintentional or or a negligent act um, by prosecuting somebody and by putting them in jail for something like this. All right. Well, we will be um, watching and uh, providing any updates as they come forward on that case. Uh, Let's shift over to a much lighter story, although it's still a serious story. And this is a picture that was posted on Twitter, on social media, and it shows a police officer, an RCMP officer, speaking with somebody. Uh, This was in Surrey at a McDonald's drive-thru, which raised the question, are they handing out tickets for distracted driving in drive-thrus? Now, Surrey RCMP say no. It was just an opportunity. The officer saw someone on the phone and decided to take the opportunity to inform them you shouldn't do that. Uh, But what's your take on the fact that this even happened? I don't think the police should be even going up to people and warning them about it in the drive-thru. First of all, it's arguable, uh, based on case law, that that a drive-thru isn't even part of a roadway, um, that it's private property, it's only open to people who are going there for the purposes of purchasing their food and and engaging in a business transaction with the restaurant, Um, and that would exempt it from the provisions of the Motor Vehicle Act that apply to highways or industrial roads, including the cell phone provisions. But also, it, it just sends the wrong message. It's, it's a real problem uh, for the public of the perception of the police. If you're seeing police do that, the public's reaction, and it's been evident from Twitter, is that the police are not enforcing the law in a sensible way, but essentially looking for a place where they can just ticket people in order to get stats and get numbers. 
And I think that's that's where people were questioning it, the idea of it being private property, that you're on somebody's, on the business's private property, you're stopped in a, in a drive-through, you're not actively driving. Uh, but then there were some people that came back and said, well, no, you're not, you're never allowed to be on your phone when your car's running, when you're operating a vehicle. So there seems to be some confusion there. There is some confusion there. Like with lots of things about the cell phone law, there's there's much that still needs to be ultimately determined by the courts. But my read of the legislation is that it applies to the traveled portions of the roadways. If you're parked and safely out of the flow of traffic, you're permitted to use your phone. And it doesn't apply if you're not on a roadway. So you can sit in your driveway in your running car and use your cell phone all you want. Um, it's private property. And, and a, a drive through is arguably also private property. It made me think of a few years ago, I guess it wasn't that long ago, there were stories as well of officers in the drive-thrus trying to catch impaired drivers with the idea being they would be going through the drive-thrus late at night and that might be a way to uh, catch people who are impaired and behind the wheel. Is that similar though, that there's, they're still in that scenario would be on private property doing that? The difference is that the criminal code prohibits impaired driving anywhere where there might be a public safety risk. So it's not just limited to what the Motor Vehicle Act defines as a roadway. Um, So the police have broader authority to investigate impaired driving on those types of private properties. And it is a different, a completely different crime or accusation. Obviously, if you're impaired behind the wheel is much different than if you're stopped waiting for food in a drive-thru and you happen to check to see if you got a text. Well, exactly. There's a huge, you know, difference in the amount of risk to public safety, especially because in a drive-thru, as you said, you're stopped. Um, or if you are moving, you're moving very slowly. It's not the type of driving, you know, if you parked at a, a red light and you don't go, somebody could be coming behind you and rear-end you because they're expecting you to go when the light turns green. It's not the same in a drive-thru. Um, people are sitting there and they know that people are, are waiting in their cars because they're um, ordering at the, the little speaker or they're talking to somebody at the window or they haven't put their car back in gear because they haven't noticed that the traffic's moving yet. Um, and nobody in a drive-thru is going much faster than, you know, a couple kilometers an hour. So even if there was a distracted driving incident that led to an accident, it's not likely that there would be even be, you know, minor damage to the vehicles, much less injuries or harm. Are you surprised at all? On, on This kind of blew up on Twitter when it was first posted, uh, an RCMP saying, saying it happened a couple of weeks ago. Are you surprised at all by the reaction? No, not at all. It, I, I mean, when I saw it, I was immediately um, uh, upset to see the law potentially being enforced this way. I'm glad that the Surrey RCMP clarifies that nobody was ticketed, but it would be nice to see the police also say, and nobody is going to be ticketed, that we are, you know, we have a policy not to enforce the law in this way because it's not consistent with the spirit of the law. Um, And uh, I'm not surprised about that because there's also been a lot of uh, attention paid to the cell phone laws. It's something that many people find themselves passionate about, but also many people are concerned they could be caught under. And with the consequences being so severe, people don't want to get tickets in these bizarre circumstances where they're not doing anything that runs contrary to the spirit of the law. And it seems like as well, and there was a comment from the RCMP saying uh, they're not targeting drive throughs but there seems to be the the thinking there uh, because the comment was regardless of the fact that it's a drive through or a parking lot under the Motor Vehicle Act, those are considered part of the roadway and still subject to enforcement of the BC Motor Vehicle Act. 
Well, exactly. And that's, you know, that's the thinly veiled threat that, you know, if we do see you, we could ticket you. Yes, we're not parking outside the drive through and, you know, using a spotting scope to spot you on your cell phone. But if our officer happens to be, you know, parking at the uh, at the Tim Hortons to get a coffee and sees you on your phone at the Tim Hortons drive through, well, we're going to go up there and we're going to ticket you. That's that's the threat that's implicit in that. And I think that's why people are concerned. Well, it's uh, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk uh, about these issues this morning and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Well, yesterday on the program, we were talking with Marvin Hunt. He's a Liberal MLA, and he brought forward a private member's bill last Wednesday uh, trying to make a difference when it comes to gang violence and when it comes to the amount of illegal guns on the streets. Uh, he's the MLA for Surrey-Cloverdale, and we know there has been a lot of issues and a lot of concern about this in uh, the Surrey area. But will it actually make a difference? Joining me now is Gurpreet Sahota, who is a founding member of the group Wake up Surrey. Gurpreet, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jalen. Thanks for taking me. Do you think this will make a difference uh, if this was to become a law, making giving more teeth perhaps to a provincial law when it comes to illegal guns uh, being found in vehicles? Uh, yes, it will make, certainly it will make a difference. These are the baby steps and we have to take that. This is a multi-layered issue where whole community should work because as a society, we failed to tackle this issue. There's a problem with the parents, there's a problem with the school board, there's a problem with the police, and there's a problem with the laws. And if we will change the laws a little bit, and then we can handle the situation better. I just uh, want to remind you that we have a, a hard drunk driving laws. Last Christmas, people were telling other people, don't drink and drive. And But if you have a gun in your vehicle, so there's no consequences right now. So if there will be new law, there will be consequences, and then people will think twice to do so. But there is federal law. That, that is illegal. So is it not just that the federal law is not being not being applied? Uh, actually, what I, I know till date, when we talk to forces, and uh, there are some loopholes in it. And when, let's say, a, a police officer finds a gun in a vehicle, and uh, they don't charge somehow, and uh, uh, they seize the weapon, but the person, uh, the vehicle owner, say, I don't know who the gun is. So there is no direct law. But in, in this law, there will be written clearly that if the gun caught from a vehicle and the person in the vehicle can be charged for six months in prison and $10,000 fines and a seize of license, driving license for a year. So that, that will be a clear mandate. Right. But but I mean, even as the federal law is in place right now, if you're driving a vehicle and police find an illegal weapon in that vehicle, uh, you can be charged. That is illegal under the federal law. So I'm thinking that the issue is more uh, that maybe Crown doesn't think they'll get a conviction or they're not going ahead. So maybe our issue is with uh, Crown and with the courts for not prosecuting. Uh, there is a certain uh, issue with the Crown and prosecution because we have less court system. Uh, for example, our court, uh, oh, sorry, our charge approval standard is very high. So uh, now, policeman can charge himself someone. He has to send 27 points to the uh, crown prosecutor. Then they prove the charges, which are very high. That's why we see less and less people getting charged because we have less courtrooms. Courts are very busy, and uh, yeah. crown try to like uh, waive the charges. They don't have rooms to run a trial. That's also a case. We are pushing provincial government for that to make more courtrooms. So 
so that more people can be charged and the people get justice. Because do you, do you think that if somebody who is living a criminal lifestyle and has illegal firearms and is involved in that type of life, uh, does another law, does a traffic violation, does the possibility of losing your driver's license, is that really a deterrent? Uh, yes, because uh, all the people involved are not criminals right now. They are new recruiters. So uh, maybe uh, there are some people uh, who are new in this gang left system and they don't have any record. But if there will be a law, then we can stop a new recruitment. They will think twice to do so. Uh, like uh, selling drugs is a different thing and killing people is a different thing. Well, definitely. I mean, you talk about new recruits. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the other things that I've been seeing out of Surrey and a very prominent member of a Surrey crime prevention group has been posting on social media that the mentorship program for youth has been cut. The funding was cut. It was discontinued. They're waiting for answers from the public safety minister. Because does that not fly in the face of if we're trying to stem this problem, we're trying to stop people from getting into this lifestyle, wouldn't a mentorship program for youth at risk be high on the list? of things that are needed? Uh, I think it's all politics. It's all politics. People get funds who don't do anything. They have no accountability. Like I know there are a couple of programs. They are just immigration programs. They are helping immigrants and they are getting funding from province and federally. But there are some serious people who are working for crime reduction and they are not getting funding. It's just connections. Who has the political connections? They get the grant. So how do you combat that? How do you, how do you work around that? Uh, we are pushing, we are like, uh, when we meet the politicians and we say that, they don't like us when we say that, but we say that in, on their face, that don't do this. Give the money where the it, where it belongs. Like, don't give money to any immigration services society. They are not doing anything on that. They don't have any agenda or they don't have any program. Like societies like study crime prevention or options or diversity, they have programs. Give more money to them. Give more money to school board for rap program. They have the program. The thing is, we have to uh, do prevention measures. We can't bring the we can't bring old gangsters back to society, but we certainly can stop the new ones. We can uh, stop the new recruitment in elementary schools, and that's only can be done by education awareness and exact programs. I would imagine, like the mentorship program. Yes, certainly. Uh, there was a, a, a story uh, in Surrey on uh, Friday, I believe it was. Uh, I should remember. I was covering it. Uh, you likely saw this. It was video uh, of a complex in Wally uh, where police were there for another matter. They saw two vehicles that looked suspicious. They rammed through a gate. Uh, police found uh, a semi-automatic pistol in one of the vehicles, a hunting knife, gloves. Uh, they made some arrests. A couple people got away. Uh, how do you, would, would a law like this, do you think by changing the law or, or bringing in a new law, does is that the type of crime you think would be, could be stopped? I think, like I said before, it's a baby step. We have to think more out of the box, like what other laws can be changed so to, uh, to handle these kind of situations because we have to be tough on the criminals we have to little bit give them headache otherwise they don't care so vancouver police department what they did is out of box things delta police doing out of box things that's why they're successful uh, all right anything else as far as what you would like to see done I, I mean in surrey right now there's so much change happening as far as shifting from the rcmp and uh, and and things that that are the priorities of the city what do you think is the top priority then as far as fighting crime 
our top priority is, is like I said, it's a multi-layer issue, and we have to work as a society. We have to work on the prevention side. Every new police force is coming. We need full officers. Right now, we have 300 to 400 short police officers compared to Vancouver per capita. So if there will be enough police officers on the road, then we can certainly stop it. Otherwise, not. Laws should be changed, and politicians should be serious about this issue. They are giving funding calls to elections, and the whole four years, they don't care. So we have to work jointly together. All right, Gurpreet, we'll leave it there, but thank you again for your time this morning. Uh, thank you. Well, you might have heard BC's Premier John Horgan was in Surrey on Friday and he was announcing funding for a program that aims to get more underrepresented kids into playing sports. And I didn't cover this, but uh, I was talking to the uh, cameraman who did cover it for Global News and he actually had a picture of John Horgan from his lacrosse playing days. This was a very old picture and had someone not said that's John Horgan, I wouldn't have known. If I had it with me, I would tweet it out, but I don't. But it's a very cool photo and it goes to the whole point of how important it is to get involved in sports at a young age. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about the announcement and why it's important is Ravi Kalan, who Parliamentary Secretary for Sport and Multiculturalism. Thank you so much for taking some time this morning. Hey, thanks, Joe, for having me. And guess what? I have that photo uh, that your cameraman brought that day. And I actually took a picture of it with the premier. So I might even tweet it and tag you with it. Please do. It's a great photo. (laughs) Yeah. And the premier spoke about the power of sport at the event. It was just uh, happy to be that your cameraman brought the picture. But uh, he spoke about how he himself uh, grew up with a single mom uh, and, you know, there wasn't disposable cash lying around to play sports and uh, and how uh, his family struggled. And, and then when he finally played sport, what it meant for him. Um, and he, he, you know, obviously he, he praises sport for, you know, putting him on the right path, as do I, to, to be honest. And so it was a special, special moment to be able to announce that money. Well, and when you look at how expensive it is now for so many families, so with the price of gas, with the price of housing for living in Metro Vancouver and other parts of BC too, it is expensive. And you throw sports and a lot of sports, the gear alone can be prohibitive. Prohibitive. Uh, where does this money go? Because this was an announcement uh, funding sport BC programs uh, about two and a half million dollars over three years. Where will the money specifically go? So the money goes towards uh, kids sport. Uh, anyone that knows kids sport, kids sport essentially are ch- there's chapters throughout the province, throughout the country. It all started actually here in BC with one chapter, and it's that what they do is they raise money, and all the money they raise go directly towards registration fees for kids who uh, want to play sport but perhaps don't have the means to do so. Uh, and so uh, historically, the province gives them four hundred thousand dollars a year uh, as kind of core funding, uh, and so the two. $2.5 million is now over three years, so their budget will go just roughly over $1.2 million. Um, and and the, the exciting thing about the money that we've announced is it's going to be very, very targeted. Um, you know, we know kids with disability. We know girls. We know uh, new immigrants. We know uh, Indigenous and First Nation kids are uh, particularly hit. Uh, when it means to accessing sport. And so kids sport will now use these dollars to target these groups to find out how we can get kids to play more. It's, it's really exciting, actually. And how will people prove that they are in the groups or perhaps in the underrepresented groups and deserving of the money? 
Well, it won't necessarily go to that, but there'll be, uh, there'll be niche programs that they're looking to launch. So, for example, uh, historically, Kids Sport has provided money for kids who want to play sport, uh, but they haven't included uh, recreation passes, for example. So if, if a child wants to go and enter a program at the local rec club, they haven't been able to access that program. And so now this money allows them to include that. Uh, it also helps uh, include, for example, um, some First Nations kids want to play sports and there's First Nations leagues for basketball in, say, in the interior or on the coast. Uh, now kids can access money to play in those leagues as well. So it's really expanding the existing programs they have. Um, and then there's also select groups that run programs, for example, just for girls. And, uh, and so this money will be allotted there. Uh, it will be available there. They'll proactively be reaching out to clubs and saying, hey, this money is here. If you have a kid who wants to play but can't afford it, reach out to us and we'll provide some money. Uh, do you think too, I mean, the, the one thing that struck me or one of the things that struck me when looking at this and the funding is we tend to focus so much on more professional sport, uh, even amateur sport, when we're talking about the Olympics and people get excited about it. And I get that. But it seems like this, the, the importance of this and, and what this is really doing is, is talking about sports on a much um, lower level, but a very important level in that not everybody wants to go to the Olympics or is going to go to the Olympics, but everybody can get involved in some way if they want to uh, in various sports at various ages it's actually both uh jill and, and the, the irony of the whole thing is that um you know when you talk to people that are in, involved in high performance they say there's not enough kids playing sport nowadays like kids are just not active as as perhaps i was when i was younger and many of my peers were and so what everybody that's even in the high performance wants to see is more kids playing means the pool grows for talent uh and it means that you know more kids will be coming through at the high performance level but fundamentally this goes to grassroots uh this uh you know helps address issues uh with kids who are the most vulnerable and sometimes at most risk uh and so what i what i even said at the announcement which i you know believe to my core is that it's about giving people community and sport does that and so um the the, the exciting thing about kids sport is we're providing this money but we know there are chapters throughout the province they raise way more money than the, than the province gives them uh and so we're hoping that they will leverage this money double it and triple it so that more kids can get access uh, to to do what they want to do uh, and, and again, it's talking, I mean, we're talking about sports, but you're right. It, there are so many other things, whether it's a healthy lifestyle, a, a sense of community, getting out and meeting people and being part of something much, much bigger. You know, it's, it's so much bigger. And, you know, we uh, in the province are seeing the stats, uh, not only in B.C., but across North America. And we're, we're seeing that uh, the anxiety levels and depression levels amongst kids is all time high. And it's directly linked to the lack of being physically active. Uh, and so we want to see kids out there. We want to see kids, uh, you know, whether it's the traditional sports, the soccer and so on, or if it's just being involved at a rec center at just anything, you know, we just want kids to be out we want them to, to be physically active. We want them to have those core physical skills so they can participate in anything they want in the future. So, uh, you know, like I said, this, this money is um, a, very, it's a very special amount of money because it really is going to go through the core of sport, which is just participation. Uh, and, and who knows? Maybe someone like uh, um, the young woman who spoke at the announcement uh, who 
participated in kids board, got money to participate, and then end up going to the Pan American Games and the Olympics. And we're hoping that that's the story we hear more often. Was that uh, it was it Caitlin, uh, the woman who's uh, the race walking champion? Yes, yeah, the race walking champion. And uh, you know, I've been to so many kids sports events. I've seen so many people that participated in, in kids sport uh, grants and got the money, and then now are you know, lawyers, doctors doing various things that are actually helping raise money. Uh, so it's, it was, it's a really powerful organization. And only now are they starting to see the people that they've helped in the last 10 years, 15 years, uh, come back and give back to the program because of the value they got from it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk more about this. And do tweet out that photo if you have it, because it's, uh, it's a great picture that, that people should see. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually laughing at the premier. I said, hey, you were a bit of a hunk. I don't know what happened to you. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I will, I will post it uh, now. And, uh, and, and, you know, thank you for covering this because uh, it's, uh, it goes to the core of sport. And, uh, and, you know, we would like to see more people support kids sport. So if any of your listeners are listening and are looking to be involved in an organization, look out for your local kids sport chapter. Get involved. There's good people doing good things. All right, indeed they are. Ravi, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Well, my guess is uh, there wouldn't be a lot of surprise if we uh, mentioned the fact that many households now are dual income. There is a split of responsibilities, of roles uh, that couples play, that uh, each member of a couple plays. Uh, Some might say the split isn't as even, isn't as fair as they would like. I'm sure that is an issue out there as well. But when it comes to offering emotional support, when it comes to juggling work and juggling family, some new research shows that women offer more emotional support compared to their male counterparts. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Lika Ten Brommelhaus, who is uh, the author of uh, this report or an author of of an article on this report, uh, also an SFU BD professor. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Good morning, Gil. Uh, what was looked at as far as um, the model of, of what a household looks like now and, and talking about uh, a couple that are raising children, perhaps uh, going through uh, all of the, the responsibilities that come with life. Uh, what were you looking at as far as how things are, are, are separated or, or who does what? Well, what we were um, initially interested in is that because we have so many dual earner households now, um, to look at how can spouses, after a long day of work, how can they support each other still? Because maybe you can get the primary, like the core tasks done, but to go that extra mile to also be available for others might be more difficult when you're tired. Or um, So that's what we initially looked at. So we um, followed uh, dual earner couples in the Netherlands, um, which meant that we would let them fill out daily questionnaires for five days in a row, Um, And we found that women, after demanding days, still keep up the support that they give to their spouses, while men kind of withdraw if they've had a very draining day. So there was a clear gender difference there. And uh, interesting that, so in looking at, was it couples, uh, the age range was was pretty big. Was it 22 to 57? Yeah, so there were couples with older children, couples with young children. So it was like a variety of households, really. And with getting people to fill it out or to, to write it down, do, do you kind of have to, to take that leap of faith or make it so that people, because I would think there might be a bit of a disconnect. Some people might think they're being more emotionally supportive or think that they're bringing uh, something in that they're not. 
Yes, it's funny that you mentioned that because I actually looked at, is there a difference in how men and women fill out these surveys? And men actually are slightly more positive about how much emotional support they provide to their spouse. But we also asked the spouses, how much support did you receive? And the women were a little bit more negative about how much support they actually received from their husbands. So we showed both analysis and both kind of confirmed the same thing, um, is that after demanding workdays, men provide less support. After very rewarding workdays, women actually step up. They up their game and even provide more support to their spouses and, and are more available for the family. And when we're talking about support, uh, what, what exactly uh, is that? Is it listening? Is it talking? Is it mm-hmm. physical uh, uh, chores? So what, what, what falls under that the umbrella of support? It's quite specific emotional support. So it includes listening, being available for someone else, um, showing affection, showing that you care about someone else. Uh, so you looked at providing support at home and the differences uh, for people coming home after they'd, they'd had a very busy work day. Uh, but the study, uh, you also looked at the support at work. What was that all about? Right, because we were quite surprised um, that the gender pattern was that clear. Um, we thought we have to replicate this study and ideally in the other direction. So what happens if you've had a morning at home? This morning can be rewarding. It can be very busy or demanding. So what's going to happen at work then next? Are you going to be available for your coworkers or are you going to withdraw? Um, So we asked coworkers, so these were couples or or buddies at work, I should say, and they would rate how much support they provided and how the quality of the overall teamwork was. And we found the exact same thing. After demanding mornings, uh, men gave less support to their coworker. After very rewarding mornings, uh, women would actually give more support to their coworker. And were you surprised at all by the findings? Well, yes and no. Like you kind of, you have, of course, hypothesis beforehand and you have theories, but I was a bit surprised that the gender pattern was that clear. And I also thought it would be like, it wasn't so surprising to find this in like between spouses, but that you could see it that clearly at the workplace as well. That was quite surprising to me. Uh, and so what do you think uh, explains it? Is it that we're so entrenched in that these are the so-called gender norms? Uh, this is what's expected. So this is how things play out? I do think think that gender norms can be quite stubborn. And even though we're um, moving to more gender equality and, and more explicitly thinking in more equal terms about how women and men divide their roles, I do think that we still are very much influenced um, about how our parents did things. And if you had a mom who always bought the presents and always was the one listening or comforting, then um, women pick up like that's our role. So it is still very much the case that women often feel more responsible for being the kinkeepers and being there to make sure that everyone is happy around them while men traditionally are more raised to be more agentic and more tough, if, if you will. Um, so that, that is one of the possible explanations of why we find this. And I would suppose, too, that would go to that if somebody's following along what we consider to be kind of stereotypical roles, there would be more instances where women, when they get to work, have had a pretty harried morning or have had a very busy morning, whether it's getting kids to school, getting kids to daycare or dealing with household issues and and would have more uh, examples of getting to work and probably already feeling like you've put in a full day. 
Right. The, so the the one thing, there's actually two issues that might be at play here. One is that even though women and men both are working, oftentimes women still do the lion's share of the household and the care task. In the Netherlands, that's two-thirds. Recently, a study came out that that's actually the same in uh, North America, if not a little bit more. Um, on, then on top of that, there is the feeling of entitlement of a job. So for men, traditionally, um, it's very given that you're going to work. For women, even though we have been years and years that women are entering the workforce, it still might be those norms that are nagging. Is this actually my role? Am I entitled to this role? So I better just step it up um, to show that my family is not interfering with my role, work role because I want to perform well because I still need to earn it. And um, men might have less that kind of pressure to really earn their work role. And so how do we how do we change that? Because one of the I, I think it's probably the biggest complaint, not complaint, I suppose, but issue from uh, married friends of mine who will say that exact thing. What you just said, that even though uh, they they would uh, consider themselves, you know, very forward thinking and, and such and that the household work is split equally, that everything is a shared uh, thing between the marriage, uh, that they still feel like they're doing the lion's share of the work at home. So how do we get to a place if we continue doing this? How do we change that? Um, well, a starting point could just to open a dialogue and, and or if there is really an inequality of who does what, you could actually track that for two weeks to, in a more objective way, show like this is what I'm doing, this is what you're doing. But I think in general, um, having a dialogue ab- about um, after a busy day, how do you want to be supported? Because it's very difficult to provide support to someone if you're not en- entirely sure what they actually need at that moment. And spouses can't read your mind. So um, really sitting down when there is a quiet moment, okay, what are we going to do? What is our strategy after a busy day? Do you want to be left alone for 10 minutes? Is that also acceptable for the other spouse? Or if there's young children in the household, maybe just need to immediately get to some tasks. And once the children are in bed, then you take a moment to reflect on your workday and share the ups and downs of the day. And even looking at your results, the study results, that there was such a difference in the in the answers from men and women, exactly to what you just said, on what that support looks like, what somebody is looking for when they get home after a busy day. Yeah, the ironic thing in that, so we interviewed spouses to find out what is effective support for you after a busy day and after a wording day, what is ineffective support. Um, and Unfortunately, I should say, women often said, I would love some instrumental help. So that is like the husband cooking or doing additions or putting the children to bed. Um, And men, as the most ineffective support, said, if she immediately asks me or puts me to work. (laughs) But then if you also see that women are responsible for two-thirds of the household and the care tasks and they have a job, then at some point something's got to give. So a, a conversation about what's fair and who does what is then certainly in place. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, findings. And now are you continuing to study this or what do you study next? Um, study next is um, I do a lot of work on workaholism and stress as well. So it's a little bit a step aside from what happens between couples. Um, but we're looking at um, if Um, If we're talking about partner effects, we're looking at if one of the partners is a workaholic, what kind of effect has that for the spouse or what kind of effect does it have um, on the family as a whole? 
All right. Well, uh, very interesting research. I'm sure we will uh, bring you back to talk more about this uh, in the future. But thank you so much, uh, Lika, for, for joining us and talking about this today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.